Good morning. Starting out with 20 degrees, now it's almost sultry. The sun is so beautiful. We're really fortunate to live where we do. So many climate crisis-related disasters around the world. And even though we complain about the cold and the snow here in Syracuse, we are indeed fortunate. I wanted to mention something about our morning service. When we chant in Meijuku Kanongyo Kanzeon, and of course we have in our hearts the many people who are struggling with all kinds of difficulties all over the world, especially in our own families and our Sangha. We name names. We start very solemnly. And incrementally, we begin to build in the speed of our chanting so that by the time we are on the last seven repetitions or so, we have come up to full speed, so not so fast in the middle. And then when we finish, we drag out the last syllable a little bit. And then there's a pause. Some of you immediately jump. Please pause. Feel the silence at the end of that last syllable. Take a breath. And then with full might and giving yourself away completely into Can you feel this difference? Yes. Mm-hmm. Little things make such have such an effect in of course in our zendo life but in life in general whether we are here in this beautiful space or home in our beautiful space or at work in our beautiful space. Some of you may not feel that way about work, but truly, again, this sense of how fortunate we are. Thanksgiving is a time when we are compelled by the calendar to say thank you. Thanksgiving is every moment. 
And yet, as you know well, you're not always feeling so grateful. There are many things you may be able to point to that you feel are somehow less than satisfactory. The Buddha said so. What was the first noble truth? I don't like this. (laughs) Yeah. When we hear these things arise, it's really a good reminder. Well, this is what is happening, but, but, that but is a wonderful way in to practice. There is an expression, a statement, a question that is used in so many Zen koans, which is what? Hardly I can give a talk without referring to it. Hmm? Why did Bodhidharma come from the West? Okay, so if you were in China, it would be from the West, India. Why? And sometimes these questions are asked at a very inconvenient moment in a particular koan, such as you're hanging from a tree, you're holding on to a branch with your teeth, And somebody comes below you. You can't touch any other branches with your arms, with your legs. You're just holding on there. And someone comes and asks, "Uh, by the way, so, of course, I'm making a joke here. It's not a question asked in any sense as a kind of, by the way, theoretical, historical question, right? What is the real what we might call um, the real point of this question. Why does it arise so often? What is this matter? How do we live our life? How? Yeah, not so metaphysical, but how, what am I here for, right? Why? Of course, from a Buddhist historical perspective, everyone understands Bodhidharma made a very inconvenient trip at the end of his life. He was around 100 years old when he took that three-year journey by ship. Many people never survived such journeys. Why did he come? But we ask this question, why? What? What am I here for? January 18th, 
of this year. One of the great poets of our era passed away, Mary Oliver. And in her poem, The Summer Day, she ends with two lines that are very poignant, piercing, and what we mean when we encounter this. Why did Bodhidharma come from the West? These last two lines you may remember are Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with this one wild and precious life? We come to practice because of this question, however it may have come up for us again and again in earlier years. Some of you are here in your early years, so even earlier, maybe you were 12, 15. Why? Can anyone remember? Hmm? Having this question before you knew anything about Buddhism, before you had ever heard about Bodhidharma, or even Mary Oliver, for that matter. Why am I here? I came upon a quote by Zenke Blanche Hartman in her book, Seeds for a Boundless Life, Zen Teachings from the Heart. I know many of you have read it. And she said, I have the great good fortune of having spent some years practicing with many other people. So I think it's really beneficial for us to recognize each time we encounter another being that we are really connected just by being alive. We're all living one life in some way. That sense of the vast interconnectedness that exists among all of us has a very important influence on how we live our life. We recognize that every action that we take has an effect on our life and the lives of those around us. 
And so we become more awake to the actions we take, the actions of body, speech, and mind. And what we notice, we may really feel that, well, each of us may feel that the point of living this life is to become a person of goodwill, a person who understands this interconnected truth of existence and who really wants as much as possible to make all of our thoughts, all of our speech, all of our actions be in accord with this vow, this bodhisattva's vow that we take. And yet, perhaps you have noticed from time to time that you feel you have stumbled that you feel you have gone against what you might have vowed to be, what you might have committed to, really recognizing this one wild and precious life, this rare opportunity to be born in human form. And to take up a practice that allows you to offer it in the most beneficent way and also to be awake to your actions when they fall maybe a little bit short of what that intention may be. And this being awake is exactly what happens to us when we practice with diligence. It's not just waking up in the sense of having a great enlightenment experience. It's being awake in the smallest and least significant, quote-unquote, ways. To notice the arising of the three poisons. To notice what we do in our practice is no way whatsoever separate from what we do when we leave, when we get up, when we walk, when we speak. When we work together, all of this, every facet of our existence, if it is not imbued with the stillness and inner serenity that happens through meditation, quite easily goes off the track. I know that no matter what your political persuasion, you are concerned about the degree of 
social injustice and, in fact, sheer terror that I referred to earlier as the condition of the world around us. And yet we cannot be of any use or help to these conditions if we come from a mind that is dualistic in its way of confronting what's going on. The true nature of our practice is not that it's useful. And yet, at the same time, it has a quality of helping us reintegrate to our original oneness so that our actions don't add fuel to the fire This is really what Torah Enji is pointing out in Bodhisattva's vow, which we chanted together toward the end of our morning service. He asks, who can be ungrateful or not respectful even to insentient things, not to speak of human beings? And then I imagine that for many of us, a certain human being may come up. <laughs> even though they may be fools. Be warm and compassionate toward them. This is very difficult, isn't it? To really feel that warmth and compassion to someone who is harmful to others, let alone foolish. But as I said, we are in a situation now where we are going to have to take action politically And it really matters, doesn't it? We can't just say, well, I'm a Zen Buddhist. I don't have to deal with that dualistic world out there. We're living in it. It's both end. And how do we have the discernment? When you have how many now are running from 25? I don't know. Some are dropped out. I can't keep track. How many Democrats are running for the office of the president? Hmm? We have no idea at this point. (laughs) They come, they go, and what will we be left with? And how can we be grateful? and respectful in a way that actually has some (coughs) long-lasting effect. 
if by chance they should turn against us and abuse and persecute us. You may at this point think of someone in your life, but this isn't us. This is not just the personal. This is the whole world, the whole suffering world. You may think of what's going on on the southwestern border of this country, but think about what's going on in China right now. Yes, you have to be aware. We should bow down with humble words and the reverent belief that they are the merciful avatars of Buddha. This is so opposite of our <laughs> usual way of seeing when it comes from a dualistic mindset. And notice that word mindset. Very different. Can you imagine if we were this phalanx of bodhisattvas vow voters? What would we look for? How would we make our choices? How would we influence the course of history? It's very hard not to feel that we need to have a very forceful struggle in our conduct. Very hard, isn't it? Struggle is an important part of our practice. We have to purify our tendency to fall into dualism. Or everything we do is going to be tainted by that. My view is right view. Your view doesn't count. To enter into the trust in democracy at a time when we are surrounded by tyranny is very hard. We have to be emissaries. And of course, we may feel very realistically that we don't have any way of influencing a thing. Very, you know, when you're faced with all these candidates and you think, well, what is the best way? How can we bow down with humble words in the reverent belief that they are, they means unlimited numbers. They are the merciful avatars of Buddha who uses devices to emancipate us from harmful karma. Now again, this is the plural, right? To emancipate us 
Where does the us stop? Where's the boundary between us and them? We're very quick to make that boundary. And we've also, because of our practice, notice how truly without any reality, any such borderline can be. To emancipate us from harmful karma that has been produced and accumulated upon ourselves through our own egoistic delusion and attachment throughout the countless cycles of kalpa. This is a very radical statement by Tore Enji. Very radical to say, I want to follow the Bodhisattva's vow. Really? Are you willing to do that? How do you manifest it in your daily life? How can you do this? How can you enter into trust in your own Buddha nature from which all speech, all your thoughts, all your speech and actions must emanate? Therefore, what happens? In each moment's flash of our thought, there will grow a lotus flower. And each lotus flower will reveal a Buddha. Then the pure land is realized. Every moment, everywhere, And it's so, easy, it's so easy for us to say in our kind of logical, rational way that this is religion. This is, you know, comes some kind of, um, uh, what would the word be? Mm, never happen. Unrealistic. But without this approach, what are we left with? We saw a film Friday night about the real nature of how Christianity was misused to become dominion over indigenous peoples, the earth, everywhere. What was the film called? Um, 
So taking a real clear, a clear look at the doctrine of discovery and seeing that it is really a code for domination. This way of taking over and possessing, this way of living by the three poisons unchecked, certainly not even noticed in any humble way whatsoever. You might say, well, that's the way things are. That's the way... The real world works. But that's not what our vow is all about. That's not what this life is for. Last weekend, Togon and I were at New York Zendo for Seshin, Soen Shaku's Seshin. And I had spoken last time, I believe, in my last show here about Soen Shaku. And joining us on the last day of that session was someone who has become a wonderful spiritual friend. Uh, Masaki Matsubara Osho who's abbot of a temple Butsumoji in Japan but also is living and teaching in New York City now and he has deep connections to Soenshaku to Engakuji his mother was born there. He comes from a temple family. He was carried around when he was three years old by uh, Yamada Mumon Roshi. And uh, his father was Inji to Soen Roshi. So we have many, many correspondences. And it was great to hear his talk on Sunday, in which he quoted Yamada Mumon Roshi, who said, I know from the coolness of this morning's breeze that I am embraced by something great and vast. When we chant Kanzeon, this is the feeling that comes. I am not doing this life. He also quoted the first disciple of Yamada Mumon Roshi, Kono Taitsu Roshi. And he wrote me in an email yesterday that he was meeting with him today. He must be quite old now. Taitsu Roshi said, Life is being lived. 
So yes, we cannot do anything to make a difference in one way. But if we understand that we are being lived, that what we are going to do with this one wild and precious life is to offer it without getting in the way, but being lived by it, that makes us accessible to any plea, any cry. We become Kanzeon. We are not just chanting to some, you know, ideal of compassion, but rather we are becoming. We are embraced by something great and vast. Quite a few of you have given yourselves over to something great and vast by taking the challenge of ONG's student training program. And by doing so, by entering into this impossible task and doing it, every moment you sit down, you think, I don't want to sit down. Every moment you come to the Zendo, oh, do I really have to come today? All kinds of reasons not to may arise, right? Well, I feel this and such, and I have to do that. And you do it anyway. This doing it anyway is giving yourself over to being lived by something great and vast. And everyone feels it. Everyone feels your motivation. It makes a huge difference, doesn't it? You may not have signed up for it, but here you are. Here you are. And as we approach the grand finale of this fall program, which ends this Tuesday evening, we are segueing. It just so happens that Roll Hot Succession comes very quickly after with thanksgiving in between just so happens so I wanted to read something from Harada Roshi if you'd like to uh, maybe remember this section I know many of you are reading or have read this wonderful book. Oh, thank you, Joraku. He's quoting Hakuin Zenji, whose commemoration takes place during that first week of December. 
practice is carried on with a spirit of dauntless, indomitable courage. That's a quote from Hakuin. And then Harada Roshi says, this is how he puts it. This is the fulcrum of practice. What is fulcrum? Anybody? Hmm? A crucial point. The central most important quality of practice. I know you wanted to know this. (laughs) Is that we do it bravely without wavering. So that's why this student program is so important because we learn how to do it bravely without wavering. In other words, we don't give in to the natural human tendency to what? Hmm? It's so hard for me to hear when you all speak at once, so take turns. I can't do it today. I can't do it today, right? That's a waiver. (laughs) Someone else? Avoid. Right, this uh, kind of ritual of avoidance. Yeah, Uh, and that comes along with distraction. Oh, anything. Just you Notice that in your sitting, how the ritual of Avoidance turns into distraction. I'm thinking about such and such. I'm not really here because I don't want to be here. I want to be somewhere else. And we can carry that kind of line of living with us wherever we go. And it has serious consequences. So without wavering, uh, Harada Roshi continues, we cannot do it with a weak heart, full of hesitation, This is so helpful for us to remember. How many times have we hesitated to commit completely? You know, we can be signed up for the student training program and still notice, oh, I'm hesitating. I'll do it, but. There's always this little but. Maybe not completely. And that's my secret. You don't know, right? (laughs) But you know what? We know. We know because we feel it. All of us, we know. It's something we all experience. And we can feel the ripple effect. That's the important thing. This is why we are so serious about this. It's so funny and serious at the same time. Full of hesitation. Nor can we do it while being concerned with what is to the left or to the right. He doesn't necessarily mean this politically, but we tend to do this a lot. You know, well, what good is it? Well, how can I really figure out? Or this and that and the other thing. Uh, What's around? Again, the distracted view. Or with what others are doing or thinking. Measuring up comparing, 
maybe I don't really have to do this so, you know, uh, assiduously because after all, so-and-so is not even here today. And uh, yeah, good. I don't have to be tomorrow. Many things like this we feel. Or how insecure we might feel. So this, you understand this is a long sentence, right? Then there's a dash. If we pay attention to each and everything that comes along, there is no way we can possibly encounter that true source of mind. In other words, if we don't train with this kind of courage, we can't be in this oneness. We're always drawn into dualism. There is no way we can possibly encounter that true source of mind, cut that root of life and death, this and that, you and me, Good and bad. Or clarify the essence of what it really is to exist. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life?